Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist and I'm extraordinarily pleased today to present to you the 400th episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. In this special anniversary episode, I have with me Ben Ryder. Ben is the Sports Illustrated reporter and author of the book Astro Ball, and we're going to talk about two of my most favorite topics, the Houston Astros as 2017 World Series champions and the use of data in compliance. In Ben's book, he really takes a look at how the Astros use data analytics to uh, assist in player selection and player development and how they're using data to try to change the future of the franchise moving forward. It's a fascinating exploration of not just data analytics, but the, the science of data, or being a data scientist. And I think this applies to every compliance professional because you're going to need to have that skill set in your toolkit going forward. This episode is, as I said, the 400th anniversary episode, and the FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again for another episode, and I am more than extraordinarily thrilled today as I have Ben Ryder. Ben is the author of Astro Ball, The New Way to Win It All. And let me just say, for about the 234,000th time since November 1, the Astros are the World Series champions, <laughs> and we're still the champions until another champion's crown, so I'm going to keep saying it. So, Ben, uh, first of all, thank you for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks for ha- thanks for having me on, Tom. I'm I'm sorry it took 56 years for you to <laughs> finally be able to celebrate a championship, but I hope it was worth the wait. Uh, you know, it it, uh, it was, and uh, frankly, I'd reconciled myself that after 2005, I'd actually been to a World Series game in Houston, and I thought that was as good it was as it would ever get. Uh, and uh, I never dreamed that they'd actually win one. So. Uh, it was a uh, very, very cool, a very special time for the city of Houston. I thought a lot about my grandfather who I went to the games with when I was a youngster and uh, all of the grandfathers, fathers, uncles who went before all of us who uh, never got to see it. It was really an emotional ride last fall. So, Absolutely, um, yeah. I mean, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Uh, no, I, I was saying as somebody who had uh, probably – you know, gone to the old cold stadium and suffered through the heat and humidity and then been through the Astrodome. Uh, certainly was a long time coming for you. It really was. Uh, it was really great. Um, but uh, we're not here to talk about me and my love uh, and how I had a fantasy fulfilled. We're really here to talk about you and your book, which I just cannot talk enough about. And I'll explain throughout this podcast. As I, as I said, it's called Astro Ball. And I wanted to maybe start with a little background on you. I know you've been a writer for Sports Illustrated for uh, 14 or 15 years. Can you tell us about your work at Sports Illustrated and how that led to you finding your way to Houston in uh, 2013, 2014, 2015? Sure. Well, I joined the magazine uh, in 2004 as an entry-level fact checker slash researcher slash reporter. Uh, kind of worked my way up, wrote longer and longer pieces, uh, focusing on baseball most of the time, uh, but not always. But, you know, I approach every piece in a similar way. One, I'm open-minded about it. And two, I really want to write a story that's rooted in sports, but perhaps has some broader implications, whether it's the human element of the story or maybe the innovations that the stories are talking about. I want to write stories that don't just appeal 
to sports fans or fans of a particular team, but would appeal to people who don't even really have much of an interest in sports. Uh, when I got to Houston in 2014 to start writing about what was the worst baseball team in 50 years, as you know well, uh, it quickly dawned on me that I had the makings of one of those stories that was rooted in sports but could tell us a lot more uh, about the world. So uh, you're right. Uh, I was a long-suffering fan, and I have to say that when – Jim Crane bought the Astros, and then we went to the American League, I, and then went in, with the three worst seasons in a row of uh, losing, that I really uh, was absolutely disgusted. I was disgusted with Crane. I was disgusted with the approach. I was disgusted with being in the American League, being a lifelong national leaguer. Uh, so I really um, kind of dropped my wholehearted and unabashed love uh, for the Astros, but obviously it came back uh, last year. But you saw something back then. You saw a process. You saw a thought, a very thoughtful process. You saw men who were, or uh, folks, rather, I should say, who were uh, uh, committed to a process. You saw an owner who was committed to it. You saw a general manager. You saw tacticians. You saw coaches. Maybe you could describe what you saw that so intrigued you so much. Sure, and I don't blame you for dropping the team. Those were terrible years, and I think a lot of lifelong Houston fans uh, were fed up as well, lifelong Astros fans, I should say. I mean, when the highlight of your 2013 season <laughs> is something called the butt slide, when Jonathan <laughs> VR slid, slides face first into the rear of Brandon Phillips at second base, and like this is the visual representation of your season, obviously it's hard to root for a team like that. Um, I should say... I went into this story open-minded or with an open mind, you know, like this team was getting crushed, not just in Houston by fans like you, deservedly so, but around baseball, how bad they were. They were being run cynically. They were being run ineptly. You know, I thought, you know, there has to be some sort of plan here, like some reason why they're so bad and don't seem to care much about trying to win a few more games in the present. I wanted to know what it was. I also knew that in order to do this story, I'd have to negotiate some sort of pretty unusual access to their inner workings, because you're not going to write kind of like an outside gloss on everything they're doing. So I talked to them for about a year. You know, I want to come down, no promises about what the story is going to be. I just want a real kind of inside, unvarnished look at what you're doing. Um, eventually, that's what they gave me. I sat in the draft room or in their draft meetings, I should say, uh, before they were making the first overall pick in 2014, uh, sitting next to Nolan Ryan, Craig Vigio, Jeff Luna, the general manager, uh, Sig Meidel, their chief data man. Um, and they're just having the meeting. And I was a fly on the wall. And after spending a few days in situations like that, I came away thinking that not only was there a plan, it was a very logical plan. And it was one that had a great chance of working. You know, in baseball in particular, the question ever since Moneyball, the teams have been asking themselves was, are we a modern franchise, which means analytically driven, uh, or are we an old-fashioned franchise, a traditional one focused on scouting and human gut instinct and things like that? The Astros had a new answer to that question. They said that we're both. You know, We're going to very heavily rely on analytics because we believe that you can't compete in the modern game without it. But we feel that overlooking the human factor, overlooking all of that knowledge and expertise that people like scouts and coaches bring is a mistake because you're throwing out potentially predictive information uh, for no reason. 
So their plan was to systematically combine that traditional source of information with the most cutting edge analytics you could ask for and to really apply that method to every single decision that they made as they tried to lift themselves from the cellar uh, to the penthouse. I hadn't seen that sort of systematic combination of all those sources of information before, and it was certainly intriguing. And, you know, if you extrapolate it out from 2014, it seemed like it had a very good chance of working. So you wrote, in my mind now, uh, the greatest article in Sports Illustrated when you <laughs> correctly you. predicted the Astros would win the 2017. Uh, I'm not, I can't remember if it was your decision or not to put George Springer on the cover, but certainly someone at Sports Illustrated had insight, uh, a gifted insight as well. What really led, uh, was it uh, this sort of first round of, of being around the Astros and, and that led to that uh, very prescient article uh, back in 2014? Yeah, it entirely came from the time I spent with the team and seeing this new plan that they had developed up close. It was not supposed to be the cover that week. As I write in the book, at one point it was like the fifth cover option for the week. But when I turned in the story and explained the sort of like grand experiment they were undertaking, the editor of the magazine, Chris Stone, kind of was excited about it. And he thought that the article was convincing and he thought that it was worthy of the cover and he thought that it was also worthy of, you know, a- attaching kind of a deadline on the thing, right? I mean, the question he asked me was, okay, so they have this plan, they have this rigorous decision-making process. When are they going to have time to make enough decisions uh, to turn this thing around? You know, when's it going to work? And I told him, you know, based on the nucleus of players they had in place at the time and their ages and based on kind of baseball season cycles and how much time they'd need to really overhaul a terrible roster into a good one, uh, the target date should be 2017, and that's what he put on the cover. <laughs> uh, well, that was a great story, and and you really detail that story of how your article moved uh, to the cover story greatly in the book, uh, which uh, for someone who likes to read about sort of inside Sports Illustrated, that part was great uh, as well. Um, what what really led to the jump from writing the article to uh, writing the book? Well, I have to say, even as I was sitting in that meeting room in Union Station, which is where the Astros offices are in 2014, and listening to these cutting-edge ideas they were talking about, and really to the purity with which they were going to pursue this plan, I started thinking at the time, you know what, this is a feeling I haven't had before, actually. Like This could be more than an article. Uh, This could be a book, because this sort of decision-making process has, of course, implications for baseball, uh, but potentially for all sorts of other industries that are struggling with how to properly use the big data we have at our disposal these days uh, to find success. Uh, of course, I also knew at the time that this, if this thing turned into a total disaster, uh, if it completely backfired, no one would really care to read a book about it. So I figured I'd probably have to sit back and wait what developed. Uh, of course, we got a ton of pushback against the article when it first came out. Nobody really believed it. Got a lot of hate on Twitter, a lot of hate from Houston fans who were fed up. Uh, but by the next year, if you'll remember, they kind of shocked the world by making the wild card uh, round and made the ALDS. Started to seem at that point that maybe these guys are on to something. Um, when 2017 rolled around, it was really about, I think it was before game three of the ALCS. And I was like, you know what, if this thing happens, if they win it all the way through that book I've been thinking about for years, um, I think we have something here. 
So I called my agent, kind of devised a plan. Um, and just after that final out, when uh, Jose Altuve threw to Yuli Gurriel to clinch this title, I started working on my proposal and headed out to a publisher's in mid-November. So your reference to the two types of people, uh, one who sent a lot of hate your way after the article, I was part of that group. And as to the group <laughs> who, was, uh, who was stunned in the next year, 2015, when we did uh, make it uh, at least up to the uh, round with the Kansas City Royals, uh, I was also in that group. So um, I guess I was uh, in both. Uh, but I wanted to, um, well, and you said something in there that it was ex- has been extremely useful and important to me, which is the how these concepts, the process, if I could call it that, really uh, can be used in a wide variety of industries. And I work in an industry that is about as different as yours is, as probably can be, which is uh, anti-corruption in the business world. Mm-hmm. But I saw your story as the exactly how you described it the use how do you use data analytics what is the appropriate uh, uh, level of the human element and how do you blend the two together to have a better product at the end of the day and that's the story that really struck me uh and when you said you wanted to write a story uh, rooted in sports but revealed uh perhaps other lessons that's exactly what your book brought uh to me and frankly how i've used it in the anti-corruption world going forward um but I wanted to maybe ask next, what was uh, your biggest surprise as you, uh, if not research, certainly watched this play out over those three years? Um, I think the biggest surprise was kind of the degree to which the Astros front office, and particularly Jeff Luno, uh, did end up trusting their gut instincts, right? I mean, they're known almost as being run by a computer, right? Like the perception was that everything that they, every decision they made was kind of spit out by an algorithm and they do run all their decisions through their algorithms. Um, but at the end of the day, some of the things that really tipped them over the edge uh, were, came from trusting themselves, trusting the, that their algorithms as good as they were couldn't fully describe every situation. They were kind of flawed inevitably. And there are some factors that might lead to winning that wouldn't show up in them. I mean, one in particular, I think it's a chapter seven of the book. It's the signing of Carlos Beltran, right? I mean, people were pretty shocked before 2017 when this disciplined, you know, rigorous team made a player who was 40 years old, clearly on the downside of his career, their highest paid player last year, giving him $16 million as a free agent. The reason they did that was really a feel thing. You know, like Luno sensed, even back in 2015 when they lost in the ALDS to the Royals, that his team was missing something intangible. You know, they had a lot of great young players, a lot of players who, uh, you know, were lit up every algorithm that they had, uh, incredibly talented, but he felt they were missing this kind of immeasurable element of team chemistry and leadership, uh, things that you can't really put a number on, but they can prove the difference between a loser and a winner. That was a big reason why he signed someone like Carlos Beltran, who was 40, who had had every experience you could have in baseball, who was known as somebody who could bring a clubhouse together, encourage guys to kind of perform uh, better than they thought that they could in very specific ways. That was a big reason why he signed Carlos Beltran. Um, as I write in the book, especially in the World Series, 
it seems kind of unlikely that they would have won despite all their talent if they didn't have that influence in their clubhouse in very specific ways. And to even take it a step further, they might not have won because uh, they might not have had someone who could pick up the uh, uh, <coughs> pitches that Hugh Darvish was going to throw. Uh, yeah, that's right. That's, that's something I reveal in the book. And again, that's one of those things that no algorithm can predict that he would do that. But when you add a player with that sort of experience level to your team, he's going to bring those unexpected elements to it. You know, he's somebody who his whole career had worked to know how to read pitchers, to see if they were tipping their pitches, uh, doing something differently when they were going to throw a fastball versus a curveball. And if you're a major league hitter, no matter who you're facing, if you know what pitch the guy's going to throw, you have a pretty good chance of hitting it. Uh, Beltran in his video study saw picked up that you Darvish when he was going to throw a breaking ball his wrist kind of stayed still in his glove but when he was going to throw a fastball every time his wrist wiggled a little bit as he was trying to get the right grip he told everybody in the clubhouse what he had seen and you know particularly in game three when they just lit you Darvish up right away it seemed as if they knew what he was going to throw every single time and it seemed that way because they did and so, and then to take it, of course, to game seven that he started and got knocked out, what I thought, and it seems to make sense, was that they were, the Astros were in his head. And even if he was able to overcome this tell that he was giving out, uh, really he lost that mental edge because they shelled him so badly in game three. Yeah, that's right. And another thing, you know, that Dallas Keuchel told me is that, yes, I mean, it seemed as if he had figured out what he was doing to some degree, although maybe he was still doing it a little bit. But when you're a major league pitcher in game seven of a World Series, no matter how good you are, if in the back of your mind you're thinking about something else other than the task at hand, if you're thinking before every pitch, oh, I better not do that. I mean, you've, you've already lost almost because, you know, you can't have that level of mental distraction and still perform at the highest level. Right. One of the things that struck me, if we could maybe go the opposite direction of uh, how uh, the system or the process didn't work, yet the Astros were able to recover, was around the selection of Brady Aiken. And I was uh, reading about that from the outsider perspective uh, when it uh, occurred in real time. I just excoriated the Astros. I excoriated mm-hmm. the general manager. Um, well, of course, we didn't know uh, about the medical conditions that they knew about. Uh, and two things struck me. One is even as uh, much or as well as the Astros used analytics, they still had two disastrous drafts back to back. But with Brady Aiken, um, they were able to work within the rules so that they got a supplemental pick the next year. And that supplemental pick became very important so that they uh, continued the process. They continued to follow the baseball procedure. And at the end of the day, it worked out for them. Yeah, it did. I mean, and this was the number one overall pick that they were trying to decide upon when I was sitting in that room with Nolan Ryan and Craig Biggio and all the other guys. And I saw firsthand uh, how much they loved Brady Aiken, how much they believed in Brady Aiken before they made the pick. They generally thought that he could be one of the greatest pitchers of all time based on what they knew. I mean, it was a risk because he's a high school pitcher. And when you pick a high school pitcher high in the draft, I mean, it's the, it's the riskiest thing you can do. More often than not, it seems it doesn't work out, then it works out. 
So I knew even as everything was happening after I wrote the article, actually, when it turned out, oh, it's looking like they're not going to sign him. What are they doing? This is so embarrassing. I mean, I knew their belief in him. And I also knew uh, that something must have developed that had really uh, emerged as a red flag. And as it turned out, uh, it did. You know, pitchers are not subjected to medical physicals before the draft. And in the Astros physical of Brady Aiken, they saw something that was very concerning in his pitching elbow. Now, it's believed to be like an ulnar collateral ligament, which is a ligament that tears when you have to have Tommy John surgery. Uh, something was kind of congenitally wrong with it, whether it was too small, too thin, uh, something structurally. Uh, so they essentially like lowered their offer uh, significantly to the point where Brady Aiken wouldn't accept it. But they gave themselves an out, which is that if they did not sign him, they were due to receive a compensatory pick in the next year that would be number two overall. So they could really retain or even exceed a lot of the value that they would have gotten from Brady Aiken by not signing him in the next year's draft. Of course, everybody forgets that the player they picked with that number <laughs> two overall pick, who was number one on their draft board far and away, was a little guy from LSU named Alex Bregman, who emerged as a star last year in the World Series. And this year is, quite frankly, an MVP candidate. So it looked like a total disaster uh, because of their decision-making process probably turned into a better outcome than it would have been in any event. And then, of course, Brady Aiken ended up tearing his elbow like the spring after the draft and hasn't become anything close to the sort of prospect everybody once thought he would be. Yes, uh, and absolutely right on uh, Bregman. And we should mention that uh, as of last night, he is uh, the first Astro in, I think, uh, uh, 12 years to have uh, 50 doubles and 100 RBIs. And, of course, he has 30 home runs. So, yes, he is fulfilling that potential. Um, Ben, I saw three general areas where the Astros used analytics. I wanted to ask you about them. Uh, We talked about player selection quite a bit, but uh, as equally as interesting was player development. So I wondered if you might give a few words on how the Astros have used analytics uh, around player development and maybe even Charlie Morton. You know, one of the reasons why Jeff Luna, when he came into Houston, kind of told Jim Crane, the only way to turn this team around in any sort of quick fashion at all is to tear it down. Now, that's not what he wanted to do. But as you'll recall, you know, in 2011, the cupboards were bare in Houston. The major league team was terrible. The minor league system was ranked like last in all of baseball. They had no assets. They had no starting point for which they could quickly turn things around. So then one of the decisions you're faced with is what do we do with the 300 players we do have under contract. Like surely some of these guys uh, have the potential to turn into something from the lowest levels of the minor leagues all the way to the majors. How do we figure out which ones we're going to keep? Well, that was a big part of their analytical process, as was giving them new tools to try to develop. Now, one example of that is another small player, even smaller than Alex Bregman, Uh, He's a guy who had already made the big leagues by the time Luno got there and seemed as if he was going to be, you know, a pretty nice, slap-hitting, slick-fielding, you know, good base-running middle infielder. And that's Jose Altuve, who's listed at 5'6", but is actually 5'5". Well, via their analytical processes, the Astros realized that he could be a lot more than a slap-hitter. They showed him 
that look, man, like you can hit everything. Your hand-eye coordination is incredible. You swing at pitches no matter where they are, and you hit them, but you don't usually drive them. You know, you hit them on the ground, you beat them out with your legs, stuff like that. But if you start focusing on pitches that are kind of in the middle of the plate or inside, despite your size, you're able to drive them. You're able to hit for power. So if you don't strike out anyway, what happens if you just start trying to hit the pitches that you can drive? That's essentially what Jose Altuve did uh, in, in the course of a couple of years. That little slap hitter turned into a power-hitting AL MVP. Uh, and the next area, uh, near the end of the book, uh, you talked about the Astros using uh, the their data analytics. And I think I wrote it down uh, as, as a quote to change the future. And I was really intrigued by that and wondering maybe uh, what you meant or where you see the Astros taking data analytics next. Sure. I mean, look, for, for most of the, their career, at least most of the run-ups to the World Series, and also, you know, Jeff Luna and Sig Meidel didn't start in baseball with the Astros. They started in St. Louis. Uh, they focused their analytical efforts on player acquisitions, right, on identifying players who, based on their current skills, uh, were maybe being overlooked, uh, had the greatest chances of success in the big leagues. And they were very successful at that, starting in St. Louis, where those two drafted more amateurs who would end up becoming big leaguers than any other scouting department. So clearly they had success at that. Now, every team is kind of much better at using analytics to identify potential in amateurs. The, the advantage you can have by applying that approach to that process has really diminished. In fact, Sig said, you know, sometimes we dream of the days when we were alone at the buffet. The buffet is pretty crowded now. A big part of their focus now is, okay, so once you have these players in whom you believe, how do you kind of change their potential, right? What tools can you give them that will allow them to exceed even the projections that you might have once had for them? They've invested in a lot of technologies uh, that will allow players to do that. One thing is something called black motion, of which they were an early adopter. It's a little knob containing an accelerometer and a gyroscope that you put on the knob of a bat that will instantly read a player's swing velocity and his launch angle and the vectors through with which his bat moves through space. Now, you can take a player's swing and you can show him, look, if you try to replicate this particular swing, the one in which the data shows is the most effective, the most likely to lead to extra base hits. But if you do that every time, you can seriously improve as a hitter. And you're not just improving our team, you're improving your own lot, you know, your own money-making potential going forward. That's just one example of the ways that Astros are using technology and analytics, not just to pick players, but to make the players that they pick a lot better. So another great example you pointed out in the book is Charlie Morton, and mm-hmm. he was uh, far under a 500 pitcher when the uh, came to the Astros, and I believe as of uh, this week he's 13 and four this year. Could you give a, a couple of uh, words about uh, how they were able to completely turn around Charlie Morton? Sure, I and mean, he's not the only one that they did this with, right? I mean, if you look at someone like Colin McHugh, who's still on the team, and even Garrett Cole, who's struggling with the Pirates and is now in his first year with the Astros, a Cy Young contender, I mean, basically, in a simplified way, they can analyze his pitch, pitch, mishes, pitch, pitch mixes 
I should say, um, and figure out where he's being effective and where he's not being effective and basically help train him to throw the pitches that are the most effective. It sounds simple, but it's really not. I mean, for example, Charlie Morton was throwing a lot of sinkers, and Garrett Cole was too in their previous stops. And those sinkers weren't that effective. You know, the idea is you throw a sinker, you get a ground ball, keep the ball in the yard, but it wasn't working. But they looked at pitches that they were throwing much less than their sinkers, in particular their breaking ball, curveballs and sliders. And hitters were having a lot of trouble with those, but they were not throwing them that much. So it sounds simple, but essentially they're like, what if you just kind of did away with this sinker and threw a heck of a lot more breaking ball? I mean, that's simply what they did with Garrett Cole and Charlie Morton and Colin McHugh. And, you know, the proof is in the pudding as far as those two. Stories you had in the book that I've been fascinating with, uh, was fascinated with rather, uh, but really had not been reported in uh, the standard uh, baseball press or the press was the the full story of Chris Correa and the hacking of the Astro systems. I was wondering if you could talk about how uh, you were able to uncover that story. Uh, sure. Chris Correa was a former colleague of Jeff Luna's and Sig Dell's in St. Louis. Um, they left, obviously, the Cardinals for Houston in 2011, and Correa stayed back. Uh, and then actually about, it wasn't, it was just maybe a couple weeks after my initial story in Sports Illustrated came out, it was revealed that the Houston's internal database called Ground Control had been hacked. And in fact, its contents had been leaked onto the internet and websites like Deadspin and things like that. And the question is, you know, who had done this, who had hacked into the system and why it turned out that it was their old colleague, Chris Correa, whether it was for reasons of competitiveness or jealousy or whatever, who had done this. Um, you know, this is not something that was necessarily the Astros fault uh, and they were able to overcome it, but it was certainly a very embarrassing development. And it's hard to assess how much of a setback they suffered from the fact that one of their greatest rivals, uh, was hacking into their system really for a matter of a few years. So one of the interesting things the Astros did in 2017, other than win the World Series, was they sent Sig Dell on a uh, lengthy trip where he actually worked on the one of the club's minor league franchises. And I was wondering uh, what your thoughts might have been uh, around why they did that and, and what Dell may have gotten out of it. Right. Well, Sig's job when he came to Houston, at least the job title, was widely mocked. He was called the Director of Decision Sciences. People thought this was a pretty highfalutin name for a data guy. But that's really what he was doing. It was more than analytics. You know, as we said, it was combining analytics with human factors to make the best decisions. They weren't practicing analytics. They were practicing decision sciences. Well, over the past few years, he's been promoted to a different job, which is special assistant to the GM process improvement, which harkens back to what we were just talking about, you know, process improvement. How do you get the most out of the assets that you have using all sorts of advanced analytics and training methods and things like that? So SIG's assignment last year was to actually wear a uniform for the first time since Little League, because he did not come from a baseball background. He was a data guy. He worked at NASA. He worked at Lockheed Martin before finding his way into the game and traveling with their lowest level minor league team in Troy, New York around to observe and make suggestions 
as to how all these tools the front office was giving uh, even teams at the lowest level of their minors, how they were being implemented. I mean, I think it was a very forward-thinking move. Sig is a very likable guy. He's not what you would think as far as the stereotypical data nerd, quote-unquote. Um, and I, I think that this is kind of a, what we're going to see more of in the future. It's not going to be rare to see a coach who comes from an analytical world kind of, you know, standing right next to the manager and consulting with him about things that are going on in the field and moves that maybe he should think about making. Now, Jeff Luna is always very clear that the final call has to be the manager. Uh, you have to pick a manager who understands analytics and strategy and is on board with it, but he's kind of in some senses the focal point of the whole team. He's the conduit from the front office to the clubhouse and back again. He's the only one who knows exactly the on-the-ground situations that might be going on with the players that might be preventing them perhaps from using some of these uh, analytical tools. Uh, so it's the manager's call, but if you have an analyst in the dugout right next to him who's a resource for him, um, I think that's something that we're going to see more and more of. And this was last year with SIG, their first effort at doing it. So the um, if the buffet is getting crowded and a lot of other people are utilizing data analytics, it really reminded me of a story about uh, my other favorite team, which is the Dallas Cowboys. Mm-hmm. And the Dallas Cowboys um, developed the shotgun or started using it. They didn't develop it in the uh, early 70s, and they were still using it in the late seventies into the eighties. And one, some, one time someone asked Tom Landry, why hadn't he moved to a new offensive formation? And his response was, well, nobody's figured out how to attack the shotgun yet. And that really uh-huh. struck, struck me when I read your, your comments and, and, and then heard you say it again about the buffet being full. Um, it seems to me that, that the Astros are still ahead, certainly in, in player development, but I was wondering where you might see them going with uh, the data science roles that they've had and trying to continually involve and engage in continuous improvement. Right. Well, certainly, you know, they're going to continue to try to eke out any advantage that they can through analytics. But I think it's true across baseball. And we've seen other teams try to do this, too, to recognize that that landscape has flattened as far as data and analyzing performance data and trying to tease out uh, whatever inefficiency you can identify. The way to really get an advantage might be focusing on those soft factors that are hard to quantify Um, but, uh, you know, other teams perhaps have not figured out yet. Soft factors might include trying to get a further grasp of the role of team chemistry and how that can contribute to wins as opposed to just like taking a shot shot in the dark on someone like Carlos Beltran or maybe even things like, you know, diet, training methods, injury prevention, all of those things that maybe teams don't have quite a grasp on are, I'm sure, what the Astros are focusing on as they continue to try to hold an advantage, uh, not just this year, but in many years to come. Well, Ben, unfortunately, we're near, we're getting near the end of our time, but I wanted to change the focus because there's something else in a completely different uh, area I wanted to ask you about, uh, which is I read in uh, the book that you had worked at the Village Voice. And mm-hmm. even though I've lived in Texas all my life and in Houston, uh, for quite a while, the Village Voice was really uh, something that I think a lot of Americans were aware of, and many of us read from from time to time. And I just wondered if we might get a few words from you about what the Village Voice meant to you, and maybe what it meant uh, to the city of New York now that it's closing. 
Sure. Well, I had the uh, incredible opportunity to work as an intern right before I got a job at Sports Illustrator, got the job at Sports Illustrator in 2004 for a Village Voice reporter named Wayne Barrett. Uh, they don't make him like Wayne anymore. He's one of these, you know, crusty, uh, you know, hard nosed investigative reporters who spent every single day of his life trying to root out corruption on the streets in New York politics. You know, he's exactly the type of guy who you want to exist to hold local politicians and local governments to task, really. Um, I think that the unfortunate demise of the Village Voice, um, and of course Wayne passed away a, a few years ago, uh, I think it's symbolic of kind of a dis discouraging and worrying trend in American media, which is the focus away from local coverage and, you know, what's going on in your hometown to national coverage, really. Like, all we watch now is TV uh, that covers what's going on on the White House and Senate level. Um, there's going to be a real void as far as what's happening in the streets in the town in which you live. That's really what the Village Voice was so great at focusing on. And I, I think it's going to be a loss. And I think it's a loss that our country's uh, probably going to suffer from going forward until we figure out a way to uh, create the next generation of Wayne Barrett's. Well, Ben, uh, unfortunately, now uh, we are at the end of our time, but I really wanted to thank you for this. I've been visiting with Ben Ryder, the author of Astro Ball, The New Way to Win It All, published by Penguin. It's available on Amazon. It's also out on ebook and audio. We're going to link to it in the show notes. You absolutely must buy this book. You must read it. It's a great read. And Ben, frankly, I can't wait uh, to your next project. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Thanks very much for, uh, for having me on. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. Hope you enjoyed listening to episode 400 as much as I enjoyed interviewing Ben and putting it on for you. Obviously, uh, I'm a huge Astros fan, and you're going to have to indulge me a little bit longer, at least till the Astros either win again, which means you'll have to put up with me for another year, spouting about the Houston Astros as world champs, or they lose, and there's a new World Series champs. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Hope you'll join me again next week where I take a look at the 2019 World's Most Ethical Company application process at Ethisphere. This is Tom Box. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.